as we prepare hearts and minds for God's word read and proclaimed, let us turn to God in prayer. Lord, as we journey this road of discipleship, we ask for your continued presence. And so, Holy Spirit, be in this place. For if you are not, then nothing else matters. And if you are, then nothing else matters. And let the people of God say, Amen. I just read a story this week about a local woman in Shelby. Her name is Sierra Stowe. She is claiming that the father of her yet-to-be-born baby is none other than Bigfoot. Anybody else hear about this story? Did I hear a yes? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Sierra's husband, Harold, is unable to have children, and she can think of no other explanation for her pregnancy. Mm. Harold stands by his wife and claims that while she was camping with friends in Lake Lure, Bigfoot snuck into her tent and had his way with her. Uh, The stoves are due in July, so the story is ongoing. It's developing. Now, this, of course, is satire. But the story is making its rounds. I read it on a friend's Facebook page, and then a few days later, two or three people sent me a TikTok. That's already been made about it. People are believing this to be true. But it's just like other things that you might find in the Babylon Bee. Anybody read the Babylon Bee from time to time? Look that up, it's good. Or the Borowitz Report. Turns out the BNN, the Belmont News Network, is satire. They specialize in taking something that could have some sliver of truth and making it into a very believable story. Now, it seems like a lot of myths really do develop that way from that line of thinking where there's this sliver of truth coupled with people's fears or maybe their fascination, and then boom, you've got a legend. Boom, you've got a story that's been reposted about a woman claiming Bigfoot snuck into her tent. I mean, it's somewhat comical. But not all the myths we believe are so see-through. Some end up creating more harm than they create laughter. Some more confusion than conviction. Sometimes the myth is more damaging than the truth. Which makes today's myth, God plays nice. Well, I'm asking, does it create or inspire conviction? Or does it create confusion? Does today's divine myth, God plays nice, is it harmless or harmful? Here in Matthew, God is not playing nice. What Jesus says is not nice. What Jesus says is not peaceful. It is jarring. It has a tone of violence. And it devastates what most, what's most important to us. 
We had a neighbor, well, really it was Margaret and Jean Glaze's neighbor, but this neighbor in the neighborhood used to put up signs in their yard with Bible verses. They were hateful Bible verses, however, condemning ones, ones that haunt rather than calm. You'll be happy to know when they move, Margaret confiscated the sign <laughs> with permission. Well, don't tell that, 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 don't tell that part of the story. Matthew's passage today is like that sign. Hear now the words of Jesus in Matthew's gospel found in chapter 13, verses 34 through 39. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and one's foes will be members of one's own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves a son or a daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. This is the word of the Lord. I mean, sheesh. God plays nice does feel like a myth after reading that verse. I'd almost rather stand up here and talk about Bigfoot. So I think today calls for a good old-fashioned three-point sermon. Have you missed those? No. (laughs) Here are the three points. Swords, families, cross. Let's go for swords first. If the myth is that God plays nice, I want to be very clear that the opposite, God doesn't play nice, does not mean that God is in favor of violence. In fact, far from it. At face value, when Jesus says, I have come not to bring peace but a sword, it makes it sound as though Jesus is the one brandishing the sword. But that is not consistent with what we know about Jesus. In all four Gospels, When swords are brought out in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus reacts the same ways. He is either telling his disciples to put away their swords because violence only begets more violence. Or he's asking the chief priests and the temple guards, why have you come armed with swords and clubs as if I'm leading a violent rebellion? And when Peter, remember Peter, he brazenly cuts the ear off a slave, Jesus says, no more of this. And he immediately heals the ear and the servant. Jesus is not interested in weapons or violence. A closer reading of, I have come not to bring peace, but a sword, shows that the Greek is actually way more ambiguous, making it unclear who is bringing what. So a better rendering would be Jesus saying, do not think that my coming into the world will be peaceful. In fact, it will be the opposite. 
My peace will disrupt this notion and your notion of peace. My peace and my coming kingdom will bring, bring out swords. Jesus' way of mercy and justice, his coming presence of compassion and healing confronts us and the way we live our lives. And when confronted, we don't usually roll over and lie down. We fight. We snarl. We lash out. That's the way of the world. The ministry of Jesus is not a time of peace, but rather a time of confrontation, a time of dis-peace. In other words, dissension, strife, and turmoil. You have to picture it that Christ's bringing peace will likely bring violence, a violent reaction from the world. And that sounds so backward, but think about it. Isn't that what God has been up to all along? Think about the Sermon on the Mount turning the world's conventions on their head. Think about Mary's Magnifica turning the world upside down. In Luke, when the prophet Simeon sees Jesus presented in the temple eight days after he's born, Simeon does not tell Mary, oh, he has your nose. He tells her, this child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel. He is to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your soul too. Peace met with real resistance. Peace met with swords. I come not to bring peace, but a sword is faithful obedience that will inevitably cause disruption and division in our lives. And isn't it that way when we think about it? Isn't it that way when we trade the dysfunctional patterns of the world for the holy ones of God? Speaking of dysfunctional patterns, let's talk about point two, families. Following Jesus is a drastic reorienting of our priorities. We need to name that for most of us, there is a gap between the palpable threats of the world and the quasi-safe world most of us inhabit. However, I know there are Christians who have found it necessary to profess a faith very different than the faith they, were grown, they grew up with, a faith very different from their parents. And that takes courage, often devastating courage. Too many of our brothers and sisters are now estranged from their families for issues of lifestyle, for relationships, for political stances, all under the name of Jesus. Which is exactly what Simeon said. The inner thoughts of many will be exposed and a sword will pierce our hearts too. You know, if we're lucky enough not to be estranged from our family members, many of us means just don't bring things up at Thanksgiving, right? We just ignore the disagreements and we've adopted sort of a certain civility in order to keep 
the peace. But friends, that peace, that kind of peace is fragile. It only takes one comment on the dinner, at the dinner table to set everyone's teeth on edge. And what do we do when Jesus is the one dropping the comments? Jesus does not seem very keen on family values because what he is keen on are kingdom values. We cannot overlook how he is often at odds with his own family in the Gospels. But not because he didn't love and care for them. Friends, do not forget, he died for them too. But his family wanted him to play nice. Just don't make waves, Jesus. Just back down, Jesus. Stay in your lane, Jesus. Who are my mothers and brothers, he asks. Those who follow the will of my Father. Earlier in Matthew's Gospel, as part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells the crowds, but first, first, Strive for the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You see, discipleship requires this single-minded focus as the orienting priority of our lives. Jesus knew that his kingdom values were ultimately wider than just families. He could not be the good news and play nice. To follow Jesus means we are called to live with reoriented priorities. And those priorities are likely different than the world's. And sometimes those priorities might be likely different than the ones you love. Being a disciple means being a learner, a follower. Committed discipleship means being a committed learner. One who watches what the teacher does and then does what the teacher does, says what the teacher says, acts how the teacher acts, loves how the teacher loves. And our teacher, for doing, for acting, for loving, was killed. So point three, the cross. I haven't seen many of you taking notes. That's surprising. Think about it. If Jesus were really the enlightened and affirming nice guy that we often insist on imagining him to be, shouldn't he have been able to stay out of trouble? I mean, what would have incited the people around him to call him not Prince of Peace, but Beelzebub? who is the prince of demons. We could ask the question, why would following Jesus wreck our families? Or better yet, if God plays nice, how did Jesus end up on a cross? It wasn't Jesus' opponents that had crazy, unsettling, off-the-wall ideas. Jesus did. In one of his sermons, prolific preacher William Sloan Coffin quoted Harry Emerson Fostick saying, the world has tried two ways to get rid of Jesus. First, by crucifying him. And second, 
by worshiping him. Coffin went on to point out, Jesus does not ask us to worship him. In fact, he specifically told his disciples not to worship him. Jesus just says, follow me. Discipleship. Following Jesus, learning from Jesus makes us see that it isn't just God who doesn't play nice. We are called to not play nice sometimes too. Lance Pape, who is a preaching professor at Bright Divinity, says perhaps the church, which I'll add should be full of followers, not so much worshipers, perhaps the church that always manages to slide through life without ever rubbing anyone the wrong way may have reason to question whether it is truly Jesus that it honors as master and Lord. Oh, do you feel that sword? You see, Jesus draws a wider circle. His gospel draws it wider than those we just love. It draws a circle larger than we can even imagine. Jesus' gospel includes way more than it excludes, and it's that kind of gospel that will be an affront to our own prejudices. It is that kind of gospel that will tear down our sense of religious superiority and then serve us a big old piece of humble pie. It's hard to swallow. It should feel a little bit like a death. That kind of discipleship should feel like taking up the cross. And when we take up the cross, friends, we do not play nice. We play like it matters, like it's worth it, like everyone is worth it, which won't bring peace. It will bring out the sword. People might make fun of us out of fear, maybe out of fascination. But maybe then our myth could become a legend. We don't play nice. Maybe it'll become a truth. But without the part about, you know, someone sneaking into the tent. In the name of the one who calls us, amen.